My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Christian Ashley. Uh, today, we'll be going through the book of Luke in chapter 18. So um, nothing uh, on the news except for the fact that your boy is about to be an uncle uh, on the day this releases. I forget the exact time when it's supposed to happen. So uh, just prayers to Connor and Paige out there and for baby of indeterminate gender, because those fools still won't let us know what it is. <laughs> and niece or nephew, uh, I'm just grateful to uh, have be an uncle and to just smother that child with affection as soon as I'm able to come up there. So just continue prayers towards them and the family on both sides as this is going on. So I really appreciate you guys doing that for us. Uh, but to our topic at hand, we'll be going, like I said, through the book of Luke, uh, chapter 18. We'll be starting with verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the upright, excuse me, unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So a couple things here real quick. Let's get to what this is not saying. Praying without ceasing does not guarantee our view of what success looks like. We have all had people in our lives that we prayed for, uh, may have been in some terrible health, or they're making awful decisions, or denying the truth of who Jesus is. Like We have all prayed for these things to be overturned and for the truth to be delivered into their hearts. Good things. Keep praying for those things. Yet, we haven't always gotten what we wanted from this situation. Look, I'm saying this. I don't want to be cynical about this. Like, that's, that's not who I want to be as a person. Uh, as many things, I'm what my father would call a uh, walking, moving paradox. I'm a optimistic pessimist in such matters. And I'm not saying that because, oh, it makes you sound special. It's like, no, that's legitimately where I believe I am. It's like, I want the best to happen. I want things to go that way. But I also realize what kind of world we live in. So when those bad things happen, I'm not taken too much by surprise. That's where the pessimism comes in. That's where the cynicism comes in. Like, look, this is a broken world. Anyone who says otherwise clearly isn't looking. I say this once again, not to be cynical, but for us to have a healthy realism when it comes to our prayers. We should ask for the impossible because God can do that and more. But we should also be aware that what we ask for may not necessarily be what he desires in that moment or ever. And we need to come to terms with that. That's not a happy thing to learn. It's not a happy thing to say out loud, but it's reality. And I don't get to reshape reality in my own form simply because I desire something. Yet, even after all that, what I said, we should still pray. Even when we think our prayers will not be heard or what we desire will not be answered the way we wish them to. So long as our hearts are set on what is righteous and true. Say, look, there are people I'm still praying for who have not come to faith and I've known them for decades. There are 
uh, people who were sick and dying. And I wish, God, please just take that away from them. And in a way he did by allowing them to die. I don't always get the end result of what I want. Because guess what? Christian Ashley is not God. And he should never be God as much as I try to make that happen every single day. And I have to get reminded every single day that's not how it works. Pray without ceasing in this regard. Because our prayers are listened to. And even when it doesn't seem like God in that moment isn't listening to us, it doesn't matter. He is. We just can't comprehend it because we are outside of time. He, me, he is outside of time in a way we cannot possibly understand. We should all seek to be this woman when it comes to prayer. She relentlessly pursues the judge, hoping that one day she can break him down so that justice can be delivered to her that he otherwise never would have offered if she hadn't been so insistent upon it. That this man, who feared and respected no one, did what she asked without once caring about her as a person, which is how we should handle these things. So if he would do it without caring about her as a person, why wouldn't God, who created all things and loves his creations, so do much more for us when we ask him for help and are in the right minds when it comes to ask uh, to what we ask of him in prayer? It's the same thing. We need this persistence in our prayers, not because God is forgetful and lazy and needs the extra motivation, but because he sees things, like I said earlier, that this way just throughout all of time itself and is working towards things we cannot know about and cannot always expect to happen the moment we ask him. We are finite beings relegated to one point in time and space for a very short amount of time. That's just how it works. Time machines haven't been invented yet, to my knowledge, so we cannot move past any point except forward in time. So while it may appear to us that God isn't listening in the moment, for all we know, our persistent prayers will be answered sometime from now, when God intended for that to be done. Justice will be delivered, but if we expect it the moment we ask, chances are we're going to end up disappointed a lot. And that's not fun. But once again, that's reality. Because we are attempting to force our view of what reality should be, rather than wait patiently for God to do his mighty work, on his own time, not Christian's time, not your time, his time. That's a very, once again, very sobering thought. One we don't want to admit out loud, but it's something we do. Because if we deny that truth, then we're denying reality. And I'll always go over how that is always a terrible idea. So next up, we'll be going through verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this filthy tax collector. Sorry, filthy, I added that. <laughs> this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you guys ever met someone in your lives who just wouldn't shut up about how great they are and how righteous they are? Have you been that person at one point in time? I think you know who I'm pointing fingers at right now. <laughs> How annoying is it to be in their presence? 
even when you know that some of what they say is true about themselves. Like I've known plenty of people, uh, excluding myself in this conversation, because we all know I'm a target, uh, and rightly so. I've met plenty of people who have done good and righteous things, but won't shut up about them. Like say, look what I did. This was for the glory of the kingdom, they'll say. Or it's like Jesus, oh man, Jesus' name was praised today while they're you know pointing at themselves and just saying all this madness. It completely misses the point of why we do these things. But like for all we know, like these people, they could very well be the type of people to offer money to charity. They could serve the homeless or to rally for legislation to be passed for a good cause. All those things are good. Yet God speaks out against these people and considers these people. He looks at them and he says, their words are less righteous than those who speak to him in humbleness and admit their sins and faults and express the desire to repent. Once again, like I said earlier, there's nothing wrong with the three things that I mentioned earlier. Like those are great. We should pass legislation that helps people, that benefits other people. We should look after the homeless. We should use the money we have at our disposal to help those in need. But what is our motivation? Is it so that Christian Ashley can look like the greatest person in the room? It's like, oh, man, he just added more money to the to offering plate. And like, man, God's work is going to get done there. Uh, do I make a show of it or do I just do it online? Or do I hand it in the offering plate without letting anyone see what I put in? Where is our heart at in these things? That, like I said, there's nothing wrong with these things. But there is always something wrong with someone who then glorifies themselves for these deeds rather than offering them up to God, who allowed these good things to happen. You and I would never have done the things we do without his influence. Yeah, people do good things. Unbelievers do good things because they have a sense of knowing this is right, even if they don't understand why. God directs that. Not you, not me. We choose to do them. Don't get me wrong. We do have a choice in the matter, but we wouldn't have done them in the first place without him, without that morality that's in all of our hearts that says, this is something that needs to be done. We also see here, once again, the Pharisee may act pious and righteous, like the vast majority of them we've seen, but his true heart and motivations are shown when he compares himself to the tax collector by him saying just how much better he is than him because he doesn't do what the tax collector does. Now, have you met any people like that in your life? You just, yep, yep, oh, man. Oh, man, I'm a screw up. But, you know, at least I didn't murder anyone. Well, at least I didn't, you know, you know, cheat on my wife or something like that. It's like, yep, sure, I, I'm glad you didn't. But that's still missing the point of, like, you still sinned against God. It, that's not how this is supposed to be. And because of that, his prayers are rejected. Prayers can get rejected. Did you know that? Because <laughs> uh, that's not good. That's not something we should ever have happen to us. Because they bring no glory to God. This man prays in front of everyone, showing, say, hey, I'm so righteous. I give this money. I'm so much better than this foolish tax collector over here. And everyone's supposed to go, man, that's a righteous man right there. I should be more like him. No, the tax collector is justified before God. His prayers are accepted before God because he realizes how lowly he is in this world, and he seeks help from God to do what he cannot do by himself. We cannot save ourselves. The only way is when I realize my need, I choose to go out to God, and he accepts me once I make that decision. That's the only way it's done, a mutual, powerful moment between us that never would have happened without God first intervening and dying on the cross in the form of Jesus Christ. Next up, 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. 
And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Mm. This is uh, for my anti-natalists out there, this, these whole verses. <laughs> Look, uh, children are some of the greatest gifts one can be given to interact with in this life. Uh, whether you're a parent, uh, a soon-to-be aunt or uncle, uh, a friend or volunteer, like I've had the immense pleasure of working with my mother over the years as she's watched other people's kids during the day. And as a result, I've gained a lot of extra brothers and sisters that I love just as much as my biological siblings. I mean, you know, even Courtney. <laughs> I love Courtney. I do. I just like to make fun of Courtney because she likes to make fun of me. And that's fine. That's how we love each other. It's a love language, trolling each other. Like, look, I, like I said, to, not to demean my point, like not everyone's qualified to watch children or to have them. But we should never disregard them as lesser or stupid simply because they don't have the same, the, them being the children in this case, uh, don't have the same life experiences as adults. I've met people who just don't like kids and they profess faith in Christ. And it's, it boggles the mind how that's possible. It's like, I get not wanting to have like, hey, like, I think, you know, for our marriage, like, it doesn't make sense. We can't take care of that child. We're not qualified enough to. Okay, I, I get that. But like not liking children really <laughs> kind of irks me, honestly. Um, I mean, sure, children are a handful. <laughs> and we've had a lot of tough ones coming to the old Ashley Academy. And but I still love them. I still want to take care of them. I want them to laugh. I want them, you know, to have fun. And I want them to know who Jesus is. And the fact that there are people in the church who don't desire that completely misses the point of what Jesus is saying here. Like, we should all be like them. Like he purposefully brings the children to him because they are just as important to Jesus as the adults are. We were all children at one point in time. We all had to get here somehow. Someone had to raise us. Someone had to take care of us. Some of the things we had to figure out for ourselves along the way, but we still got here. Furthermore, in this moment, like he explains why he wants them around them. Because in order to gain access to the kingdom of God, we must have faith like a child. We must not be childish. Once again, there's a distinction between being childish and childlike. We should not be there in the sense of a child like you know, kids, like kids are dumb. Like there's no other way past it. Like, sure, there are some clever kids out there, but at the end of the day, kids are dumb. You know why? Because they don't know any better. <laughs> I've met a lot of really smart kids. I've also met every single one of them who was dumb. I've been a dumb child. My siblings have been dumb children. It's just how things work. We have to figure out the world around us as time goes on. Tid, kids, tids, kids can be stupid and naive and they'll believe in anything because they're young. There have been so many times I have trolled the children under my care and made them believe things that were not true because it's funny to see the looks on their faces. When they say, wait, you said this, but you also said this does contradict each other. And they're learning logic for the first time in some regards, or some of them, they're not even smart enough to learn that. <laughs> or you'll say, hey, here's this ball, pretend to throw the ball and they go searching for it while you still got it in your hand. Like there's something pleasurable about that because like no one gets hurt. It's a harmless prank because kids are stupid, but kids are also smart in some regards. But this is how we should not be. We should be more in the sense 
of when a child truly believes in something, they give it their all and they devote themselves to it. Like just like a kid does, you know, whenever they find some new superhero to look up to or a new boy band whose music they love or anything else. Like, I mean, I was always a, a dinosaur guy, a reptile guy, um, a space guy when I was younger and plenty of other things. I love football and basketball and all these other things. And when I went into those things, like I gave it my all. And as I grew older, I got lazy because that's what happens when you grow older. Your interests change. Jesus is asking us to be like that child. When you introduce something to him the first time, you know, that time they first see, you know, Spider-Man and they first see Batman or they first see, you know, a Barbie doll or a a toy truck or what have you. And they say, this is what my life means right now. (laughs) That's how we should be in the kingdom of God. Not because we're stupid and naive, but because we are childlike in the fact that this is what life should be about, following after God and all his purposes so that I can fully devote myself to the kingdom, just like a child would to something they're just discovering. We, he should be the focal point of our thoughts and obsessions, not to the point, because there are people who take this too far. I need to say that too. Not to the point of that's the only thing that ever comes out of our lips. That is not helpful. Guess what? You sound more like you're being programmed as a robot versus an actual breathing person. You need to be better than that. I've met too many dull Christians in my life. That's all they talk about. They have no interest outside of church. That's not what God intended us for do, uh, to do. It's great. Like, yes, we should be devoted to church. We should be devoted to service, to showing up on Sunday and Wednesday. And, and when someone needs volunteer work need, done or uh, a bake sale, what have you. But if that's all you're devoting yourself to, you are a boring person. Like, there's no way around that. And the world will see that and say, that's what Christians are like. Well, I'm not giving up all this stuff. It's like, oh, I have to give up everything. Like, forget the conversations people have. Well, I have to give up drinking. I have to give up, you know, uh, partying and all this. They're talking about stuff like, you mean those idiots, they don't even like watch anything that's not, uh, that's unchristian. They can't watch a Marvel movie. <laughs> they can't watch. Um, you know, a, a new thriller that's just come out or a horror movie or what have you, because all they do is just watch Christian stuff like that's boring on the inside and the outside. So don't be that person who gives an unbeliever the right to say, oh, well, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to end up like those losers right there. And well, I don't want that life because that doesn't help anyone be more childlike in that regard of following after Jesus. But guess what? Children have other interests than just one thing, and they can devote themselves to those interests too. Next up, we're going through verses 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. 
Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in his time and in the age to come eternal life. A lot here, uh, just in these verses alone. Uh, let's start with the beginning. Here we see uh, the rich young rulers, sometimes just a rich ruler. I, I may go between the two, depending on how things go in my brain. Like he asks uh, one of the most important questions of all time, like showing that his heart was almost in the right spot. He words the question wrongly. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's think about why that would be for a second. Oh, the Jewish people, they're God's chosen people. That There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That is scripture. That is how things go. So he assumes because and this may be an assumption on my part that this is what he's assuming. Some things scholars have said on this regard is this is what he, think, he is thinking, is that, well, because I'm Jewish, well, I should be able to inherit this internal life, right? I don't need to work for it or anything. I don't need to do anything. Like, I've already kept the law and all that. So surely, surely that means I, of all people, should be the one to get it. And Jesus directly attacked that, uh, directly attacks that in a moment. But that's not how this works. We've gone over it before. It doesn't matter if your daddy was a preacher Grandpappy, great-great-grandpappy, doesn't matter. Your family does not get you to Jesus because you were born in that family, because you were born rich, because you were born poor. Doesn't matter those circumstances. What matters is how you talk to God when he says, come and follow me. And this man, this rich ruler right here, he's going to see what it's going to cost for him. Let's also specify for him. Our desire should be the answer to this question of how do we get eternal life? That is an honest question. That is something we should all be seeking after, especially if you've never received Christ. I mean, it should be among other questions like, who is Jesus? Uh, like, so that we can see who God truly is and follow after him. No, not for the sake of gaining that perk of eternal life, which, by the way, is a pretty great perk, but it's not why we do what we do, but to recognize that nothing we can do is important enough or good enough to earn salvation and also knowing how to find salvation and to then repent of our sins so that we can obtain salvation. That's something we all need to do. We cannot do this on our own. It is a conversation with God. It is, I recognize I am a sinner. I am screwed up. I have nothing to give you, Lord, but please forgive me anyways. Bring me into your kingdom. Make me a better person. Make me a better man. Make me a better woman than who I am. And it's as simple as that. You would think. But some people, we got to complicate it more rather than just doing the simple things God asks of us. And one of the things Jesus brings up is like, hey, you call me good. But the rich young man, the rich young ruler, he doesn't understand what saying that actually means. What makes Jesus good and him calling him that, it just shows a lack of awareness by him and the world when they say that Jesus was a good man we should be like. I mean, you hear that. Someone says, well, I don't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a good guy. Then, like, objectively, that's true. But do they understand why Jesus is a good man? 
because a good man doesn't tell the people around them that he is God unless he is. Otherwise, that man is a liar who deliberately led people into following him for the sake of himself and not for their own well-being. If Jesus is not who he says he is, he is not good. He is a liar. He's a charlatan who we should never listen to. Or, I mean, your typical classic uh, liar, lunatic, lord, also legend add to that scenario. That is not a man you should respect. That is not a man you should look up to. Why would we ever say that man is good? Well, because he does good things, sure. But his character, otherwise, in that regard, if he's not who he says he is, he's a false teacher. He's never, no, we should have no respect for him. When someone around you says that they like Jesus, but they don't like Christians, I probably have a good point in some regards there, so I'll cut them some slack. Ask them what makes Jesus so good. What is what is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of being of being of you listening to what he has to say? Uh, most of them will have a very difficult time explaining why good is a word they should use to describe them without realizing that he's only good if he if he is who he says he is. A lot of those people will just say, well, well, he did good things. He looked after the poor and all this. It's like, yeah, that's great. But who says that's good? Where does that come from? Yeah, it is true it is good. But why is it true? Why is it true that Jesus is good? Well, because he's God. And because he's God, he can save us. Because he is God, he can look after us. And that's why he is good. Because he embodies all the qualities and characteristics that not only mean good, but that we should aspire to do good. Also, we see here... <laughs> Is that after all this, the rich young man is lying and that he never broke any of the commandments or maybe like some scholars would say he legitimately believes he hasn't broken them. Uh, maybe he hasn't heard a sermon on the Mount where most definitely he's broken some of these because of what Jesus adds on to what the commandments say. And this is only like half of the commandments. Uh, other parts Jesus deliberately uh, leaves out. We don't really know why. I think his main focus was to say maybe these were specific things since that person had done had committed, and he was going to see if he was going to be honest in that moment. I kind of like that interpretation. Uh, others would say it's something more the lines of, well, he just pick and chose uh, out of the 10, a random assortment, and uh, because it didn't really matter what he chose because the man had broken every single one of them. Uh, says, These are more of the, the do nots we see. So that may be a list Jesus chooses to go from. Either way, the point being the man is a liar, whether he recognizes it, recognizes it or not, because it is completely impossible for a single human being to keep all these commandments, let alone just one of them. I mean, sure, uh, I've never uh, committed adultery, no, number one, because I've never been married. And number two, it doesn't matter because Jesus adds on to what adultery is, uh, letting us know what the actual spirit of the law was when it means you lusting after someone. Well, of course I've done that. I mean, I, there's no human being around who hasn't felt that at some point in time. And lusting in that way is sin. So this man has fallen in that way. He's lied, whether he realizes it or not. So he's already broken that command of false witness. Like, look, there's no one alive who can say this. The only person who could have ever said this is Jesus, because he is literally perfect. He has never once sinned. And it's that lack of awareness in this young man, this rich ruler. That shows, even though he does have a heart that kind of wants to seek after God, he's not there. Out here's where we get to. Oof. So in college, let me give some preface here. Um, I read we had to read for our, our small groups my junior yeah junior year. 
uh, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Uh, now, Piper is someone I can kind of take or leave him at times. Uh, I enjoy him ultimately, but Don't Waste Your Life in particular was one of those books where it's like, man, you had an agenda and I, I can clearly see it. And a part of that agenda was, well, no one should ever be rich or something like that. Uh, I don't think he ever says those words out loud. It's Once again, it's been like oh, over a decade since I read it. But I remember reading it in that moment going, man, this guy doesn't think people should get rich at all. If you do, then clearly you're working against Jesus. Once again, he never once says those words. But I felt that spirit inside of what he was saying. That is not what Jesus is saying here. We said it before. I'll say it again. Being rich does not automatically make you a sinful person. It can, because a lot of people gain their wealth by illicit means. It's very easy to see how they do it. They uh, push their funds elsewhere, and so they don't get taxed as much and don't give back to the, the country they live in. There are plenty of people who take advantage of the workers around them and give them less wages than they deserve for the, what the, they have earned by working for him while he takes a bigger pay raise for himself or she takes a bigger pay, pay raise for herself because men and women are both, e both evil in this regard. doesn't matter who's who in this moment, gender-wise, sexual uh, identity-wise. That's not the point Jesus is making here because it is possible for the rich to get into heaven. It is harder for them, which is one of his points, because of their wealth, because they have something most of us don't have, financial security. <laughs> and I've mentioned before, I have very little financial security. Being a poor seminary student, wondering, you know, when am I going to be able to pay the next bill I have, or what have you. A rich young ruler here doesn't really have that concern. Sure, he may be worried, like, oh, they're going to take this extra from me, uh, but oh no, I guess I'll just have to, you know, like, downgrade to it from a mansion to a slightly smaller house. Like that's the rich we're kind of talking about here. The one that cares more about themselves than other people because of this, because of their wealth, they have the security where to say, well, I don't really need God that much because I'm good. I have everything I need. Like I was curious about this whole God thing, but uh, no, not for me. That's what Jesus is speaking out against here. Not it is because he makes the point to say it is not impossible for the rich, for rich people to gain access to the kingdom of God, to gain access to heaven, but it is harder. But God makes the impossible possible, and that is His point. What is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do things we will never be able to do because He is God and we are not. So He could have done the same for this rich young man if He had repented of his sins. But because he allowed his wealth to hold him back, Jesus speaks out against his wealth. Make sense? All right. Also, we see here <laughs> our boy Peter uh, opens his big fat mouth again. Having not learned from Jesus's earlier parable about not hyping yourself up to look good, he speaks up and he completely embodies what Jesus just talked about not doing just a couple verses ago. Look, it is good that Peter is serving with Jesus amongst the 12 and that he's learning under him. But this does not make him inherently better than a believer who didn't leave their home to follow after Jesus at this point in time in history, because that's not what they were called to do. Peter was called to do this. They weren't. Jesus gently chides Peter for his words and promises that even when things are taken from us, the ultimate gain we receive from following after him will make it all worth it. It's going to cost you and I 
something to be in this thing we call Christianity, this relationship we have with God. It's inevitable. Peter is trying to make himself look good because he just can't help himself. But at the end of the day, Jesus is right to say, look, like a lot of people are going to be giving up stuff. And uh, later on, Peter's going to be giving up a lot when he finally gets it, when he finally understands who Jesus actually is. And with that, we'll go next to verses 31 through 34. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. You would think the third time would be the charm. Uh, This definitely proves that wrong. This is the third time Jesus predicts his own death. The disciples, once again, don't really understand what this means because they're not able to see thanks to this spiritual veil that just hasn't been lifted from their eyes just yet. God hasn't allowed it to because now isn't the time for them to do that. When it does occur later on, we see in Acts, uh, and Jesus helps them see what was always there, they are then able to use their past failures as motivation to do better in the future. Can you think about who you were before you came to Jesus? Can you think about who you were when you just came to faith? Or even right now, after how many years? And you go, I really wish I hadn't done that. Well, guess what? The disciples after Jesus you know, ascended into heaven definitely all wished that they had understood him the first time around, the second time around, third time around, when he said and predicted his own death. There's a lot they were ashamed of. But they didn't remain in that shame, and neither should we. We should accept that shame and that guilt and say, yes, I should feel this on account of I have done wrong, but do not stay there. Do not let that uh, quicksand, quagmire situation keep you from going on and improving yourself, from asking questions to speaking to your neighbors and apologizing for things you said before, you did before or old friends that you ruin a relationship with them because you stole something from them or what have you, whatever. Don't stay in the past because if that happens, we do not have the church we have today if we just remain in our sin the moment we all got guilty about it. That is not healthy. That is not good. We also see Jesus needs to die in this way. The God of the universe, now in flesh, is willing to go through all of what he just said, which not a single bit of that sounded fun to me. Just for the chance that someone will say yes to him, because that person who does say yes is worth the hell he will endure. Jesus's motivation for doing this is to reunite humanity with God, because it cannot be achieved through human means. We will never be righteous enough. We will never be good enough. We can't even follow the whole law like we've talked before. It's impossible without divine intervention. And that's exactly why Jesus needs to die the way he does, proving his mastery over life and death at that moment in time. And we'll eventually get there. We're, on, we're very close. And to finish off this chapter today, we have verses 35 through 43. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? 
He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Here we see the blind man following the example that he couldn't possibly have known about that Jesus had given to the woman in his earlier parable in this chapter. Denied once his right to speak by the people around him, he speaks up again. They are actively sinning against him in this moment, but he speaks up again because he has a need that cannot be denied by the hateful and spiteful people around him. They see him as just a blind beggar, this loser that deserves exactly, probably God was punishing for something he did, and he deserves exactly what he got. Or maybe his parents did, or what have you. That's in their minds at this time. But the blind man doesn't let it stay that way. Jesus recognizes this persistence and rewards him for his faith. Furthermore, he doesn't just, the blind man doesn't just move on with his life now that he can see, like we saw earlier with some of the lepers uh, in the past chapter. But he glorifies God and praises his name showing who he is now and the health that health wasn't only improved physically for this man, but also spiritually. And no one can deny that because they just literally told this blind man, Hey, shut up. And now they see him walking around, seeing, praising God. Like you'd have to be the most cynical of people, the most broken of people to not recognize in that moment what has been done. And that's exactly what Jesus did. God allowed this man to be blind to live in a world where it's possible for this evil thing to happen to him. To I, We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if like there had been an accident along the way during work or uh, something had happened along the way that he lost his sight due to disease. We don't know. Either way, it's something that should never happen to a person. Once again, uh, to people in that community, it's not your fault that you're blind. It is not your fault that you have a disability. You are not lesser as a person. And I've seen too many people say that. Uh, from the pulpit. And that is something that never needs to be said. And I want to fight against that. But what we do see here is that Jesus allowed this so that God's name could be glorified. And it does. And we don't see anyone come to faith here. But this may be the exact moment in time where they recognize their need for Jesus. And it never would have happened without the suffering of one person bringing something greater. I don't pretend to understand Everything that suffering does to someone, I don't pretend to understand and say, well, you went through this exactly because God wanted you to talk to someone about that along the way. I don't know. And that's probably not the most helpful thing in the world to tell someone uh, who's suffering from abuse, who uh, has uh, lost a limb or uh, been assaulted or something like that. It could be God allowed it to happen so that along the way you can talk to someone who's also going through it and you can bond that way and you can help them walk through it. Could be. I don't know. But God allows evil things in this world because he's giving people time to repent. That same verse from Peter, that same Peter, by the way, who spoke up in pride, is then able to deliver something like that several years later in faith. That's something we should all aspire to. Thank you guys for listening to the latest episode of Let Nothing Move You. Uh, Please, if you have the time, leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Uh, It definitely helps us with the ratings and stuff like that. I'm extremely appreciative of those who have done this. Uh, If you're interested interested, I should say, in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're going to be in Matthews, North Carolina on July 15th, well, don't just stay there in the city. Come to us. We'll be there doing uh, with Systematic Geekology with some of my fellow hosts. We'll be hosting the Summer Fun Slime Time event. We'll be having a one-day adult 
uh, VBS extravaganza from 9.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. There you'll be able to see us live record some episodes. We'll be doing definitely a discussion on demons and fiction. And we'll also be doing like a geeky trivia competition. It's going to be a ton of fun. I'm so ready to do it. Like I'm counting down the days uh, for this. Obviously, the baby is way more important. But this is going to be a lot of fun, too. Uh, if you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. Contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to also extend, as always, a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.